The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. As much as I enjoyed getting to be in Peggy's class, I really wanted to be in Carmen's class because I didn't know this was going to happen, but the study that we're looking at right now, this section on church dynamics, which we've been covering in the first these first many studies, has been about the role of women in church. We've been building to this. We did it by looking at some Old Testament situations, which don't tell us how things operate today, but they show us from the Old Testament that maybe sometimes the way we think about the role of women is different. Is different. In fact, I would still suggest by some of those things that we have in the Old Testament, some of those situations were, shall we say, more culturally defined than just God-defined. Now, there are places that are definitely God-defined, but some of those things are culturally defined by the culture that those people lived in and the way they thought and they were trained to think uh, with regard. I mean, look at it this way, just thinking about this. You women, raise your hand if you'd like the idea if our culture would allow us men to look at you as, as our property again. Raise your hand if you want to get on board with that. Come on, right now. Make your voice. <laughs> See, none of you do. But that actually was, that was true in those Old Testament cultures. You women and daughters were considered property. Ben's got three daughters. The good thing about that is, guess what? He's got three daughters that are all going to bring pretty good, you know, dowry, dowry from their uh, from 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 their perspective. The men out there in the future. I, I don't know if you guys remember. Um, I think it was Monty Level when he was with us. This is 10, 15 years ago, and he was talking about um, uh, the way the men on certain islands in different parts of the world or different places, the way they valued women, and a woman that was really worth her value. That is a two-cow woman <laughs> versus just a one-cow woman, <laughs> you know. In other words, a woman that was really a good woman was a two-cow woman. But, but it was because she was property. Anyway, all that to say, things have changed. And I, in many ways, I hope you women appreciate it, I think it's changed for the better. But we still have some things that also seem to be limiting for us. And we've got two passages. We're just going to introduce those right here at the beginning. Let's turn, first of all, to 1 Timothy 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to go down to verses 11 and 12. I don't know if we're going to get through all this. I, have, I never have any idea how long it's going to take me to get through something that I have an outline put together for. Um, we may be back at this next week, but 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, Let the women quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. Okay. Now, I hope you want, well, anyway, we're not going to teach this passage right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Go to 1 Corinthians 14. It's hard not when you're just reading it to not only comment on so, it. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. I imagine in the Greek there's a different words for, word for woman and wife. There's not. It's no. just the word gune. Yeah, okay. well, it's I the same word. Could that verse be translated a wife learning quietly? Well, I, when, we go through, when we go through that and we go through the passage here in 1 Corinthians 14, that really does have some bearing on this. 
because the first Corinthians 14 passage is going to put a woman that doesn't have a husband, but put her in a tough position when we look at this. Okay, so let's go over to first Corinthians 14. This is the one that we're actually going to sit on. A dowry was actually what you prepared your daughter with. Yeah, you paid it to the in-laws. Right. The but they also gave you something in exchange. In other words, you weren't just sending them a daughter. You were, you, there was also something on, there was an exchange that went on. You got something in return. But the dowry was like, yeah. I don't Well, huh? I, I, there, I'm like, what are you talking about? Because my grandma had a dowry. Yeah. She had to pay my grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> I, any of you ever seen uh, the John Ford movie, The Quiet Man, with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara? Oh, man, you guys have to watch it. It's, it we didn't watch it this year. We always watch it on, on uh, um, St. Patrick's Day because it's Irish. About John Wayne, he's a boxer. Oh, I just, spoiler alert, that ends up going back to Ireland. But, but he, he falls in love with Maureen O'Hara, and she comes in, and she opens the thing, and she dumps all this gold out on this table, these gold coins, because that's part of her dowry, as well as all the furniture in this parlor room and all these things like that, and, and some of her china and things like that. Yeah, that was a, big, that was a really big deal. And that's, that was 21st century, or 20th century Ireland that that's taking place in that story. You guys got to look it up. Go get on Prime. I think it's on Prime. <laughs> you can watch it anyway. It's a good story. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 then. Okay. Enough sharing about stupid movies, which I just told you was good. But anyway, sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion or chaos, but of peace in all the, as in all the churches of the saints. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject or put themselves in submission, just as the law says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands. There's that, that, that tricky thing that, well, it implies she must have a husband here. Ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in the church. So anyway, we're going to be dealing with these both these two texts today and what's going on this is we're going to try to try to make some sense out of some of this because the problem is is we have some new testament texts contradict this okay so how do you put all this together well there's five interpretations um, there may be more but five key interpretations for first corinthians 14 34 which says let the women keep silent in the churches okay those five interpretations i've listed them out here on here but when women this this applies when women abuse their right to speak in other words some people think that it means well women speak up all the time and they get annoying because they're just constantly interrupting and they abuse that where they could be talking but it's always them talking in fact i had one person at one time say that about one of our bible studies it said you let the women speak up too much and ask too many questions and it's disruptive Women shouldn't be doing that. I was told this specifically. So um, there are people that they that that's the way that's the way they understand this thing. I think that's not likely. I put that in your outline. I do not think that that's a likely interpretation that has legitimacy to it. It applies when women prophesy or use tongues. Problem with that is uh, back over in chapter eleven, you have women prophesying 
and speaking in tongues while prophesying, and they have to have their heads covered when they're prophesying. And where are they prophesying? By themselves? No. The very point when you look at prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 is you prophesy in the church for the benefit of other people. So if she's prophesying, if a woman's prophesying, she must be doing it out loud, which, by the way, means she's also speaking. So I don't think that that's a very likely scenario. Probably not true. When women try to take authority. Now, this is a possible one that women sometimes are speaking up because they're trying to take over. And I've been in churches, and maybe you've been there, where they're in, I, I've got a friend that pastors a church, and he had a woman. She's not there anymore. She and her husband left that church. But he'd asked us to pray because this woman was constantly trying to take over the church service. And she was constantly trying to say that she didn't really like the fact that the pastor was doing so much of the teaching. She kind of thought that she should be doing more teaching in the church. And so she was trying to take over the authority. That may be the case. I still don't think that that is as likely as what we're getting down here when women judge prophecies. The reason for, I think this one is likely is because that's the context that's going on here. And then the last one, it's just an absolute rule all the time. Women just never are supposed to speak. So you women can't raise your hand and say, hey, what verse was that that you just said? What, what, where did you send us? I don't see that passage because sometimes I send you the wrong place and my wife has to speak up or some of you have to raise your hand. You women can't do that. And there are people in churches, there are certain churches that teach women only, you can talk when the church service is done when we're milling around. But during the church service, you can't say anything. You just got to sit quietly. Well, unless maybe you're leaning over telling your children to sit quietly too. I don't know. But you get the point. But those are the five main interpretations of this passage. There may be some others that I have not come across, but those were the ones that, that I've come across in working on this. So let's look at some background, some things that we're going to just say about this. And I'm not going to develop all of these. We've talked about some of this before. <clears throat> but number one, when the, part of the context for the 1 Corinthians letter is that this is a pastorless church. Their pastor, Apollos, who technically was an apostle, He's with Paul. They want him to come back, but he says, I'll come back when it's a good time. In other words, uh, the evidence is, is that Apollos had left the church because he just got tired of dealing with all the conflict and problems in the Corinthian church. Well, if you went through, look at that. If, if, if you're familiar with the Corinthian letter and the church and all the problems that are going on there, which we're not going to go through and illustrate, you might as a pastor go, I'm fed up with this. I am constantly putting out one fire after another here. And these people will not be reined in. So Apollos leaves. One of the other things that went on with that, and, by the, and you see that when you get to chapter 16, he says early on, Apollos was very popular in the church, but Paulus had left. So they have other people doing stuff. So what you have now is you have a church service going on without a shepherd. Now, a lot of those churches had multiple shepherds, but apparently that was part of the problem in Corinth was that they just had this one shepherd and you had other people that weren't really shepherding. They just wanted to be heard. Is there a difference between shepherding and actually wanting to just be heard when you're with the church? Yeah, there is a difference. So I want you to look here in 1 Corinthians 14 at this next issue and that is that everyone had something Everyone had something that they wanted to say. Look with me back up here in verse 26. Because he's talking about the problem in here. And, and 
he, the first part of this has largely been a, a question that he's dealing with between prophecy and tongues. Prophecy and tongues. Uh, if I got up here on a Sunday morning and I rambled off a whole bunch of stuff in Portuguese, okay, Portuguese, what, what language do they speak in Brazil? Not Spanish, they speak Portuguese. Uh, you know, so let's say I get up and I rattle something off in Portuguese. How many of you would say, oh, we know what you're talking about? How many of you understand Portuguese? Nobody? But I can speak Portuguese and I want to do that for you. Now, sometimes missionaries get up and they'll read something from their Bible in the language where they're at to, to just to kind of give you the feel this is what it sounds like. But they're not up there saying, hey, I can speak Portuguese. I want to, I want to speak Portuguese so you guys can be dazzled by my ability to speak Portuguese. But that's what was happening. You had people that could speak in tongues. They didn't learn how to speak in tongues. They were given the gift of tongues. And with the exercise of that gift, they could just open their mouth and they could say this stuff. Did they know what they were saying? No, we're, we're even going to see that listed. So let's just put in at verse 26 and look at what he's talking about here in the context. I mean, you, part of me wants to teach all of 1 Corinthians 14, but we've we got to stick to the main issue here that we're getting at. Verse 26. So what is it, brethren, when you assemble, when you all come together, each one of you has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. In other words, everybody wanted to participate. Is that a good thing? That is a good thing. That is a really good thing. There's, there's a part of me, honestly, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not trying to make any of you feel bad, but there's, I wish all of you were willing to get up and share something on Sunday. I wish all of you were willing to contribute something when we gather. I think that that's good and healthy. We're going to come back to that here in a little bit. But he says, let all these things be done for edification. In other words, it's good that you all want to participate, Paul says, but make sure when you're participating, you're doing it because you want to build other believers up. Not just that you want to open your mouth and be heard. Sometimes people are, there's a comedian, Brian Regan, that says, he says there's that me monster at parties, as he's saying, where somebody's telling something, they're just like, they're like just waiting for that man to stop speaking. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And then they just, they're just waiting for their chance to say what they want to say. They just want to be heard. Calls him a me monster. And sometimes in a church, you can have me monsters. They're not saying, I want to say this. I want to share this because I think this would be really encouraging and helpful to these people, especially after some things that they've talked about. They're like, no, I just want to be heard. I want everybody to go out of here saying, wow, he said something really cool. Now, you might call it cool, but if he's trying to impress you with that as coolness, then we got a problem. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at most three, and each in turn, and then let somebody interpret. Now, why do they have to interpret? Just because you could speak in another language didn't necessarily mean you understood that language. That's not tongues. Tongues was not the ability to understand the language. It was simply the ability to speak in another language. And you might, by the gift of tongues, speak in 20 different languages, depending on the circumstances. He says, but if there is no interpreter, let them keep silent in the church. In other words, just because you can get up and speak Portuguese in front of everybody doesn't mean you should. Because if there's nobody, do we have somebody with the, with the gift of interpretation of tongues? That's a gift back in chapter 12, the interpretation of tongues. He says, if you don't have somebody to interpret, then he says, be silent. 
And this is the word that's used to women down below. And guess what it means? It means silent. That's what it meant. It didn't mean calm down. It didn't mean kind of quiet down. It, I mean, the word literally meant to be silent. I went through a number of other places. I'm not going to take you through those. But I just to confirm going through this, it meant to hold your tongue. Shut your mouth. And so he says, if, if there's nobody to interpret, then keep silent in the church. Well, and speak to himself and to God. Go ahead. You, you, you like speaking in tongues? Then speak to yourself and to God. God knows what you're saying. And do it so that you can impress yourself with the fact that you got to speak in tongues. <clears throat> and let two or three prophets speak. And then let the others, <coughs> excuse me, and the word that's translated others here is the word alas. Um, okay, so they're supposed to do things in two or three. I'm just trying to get this. And two or three prophets could speak. And then the others evaluate. Now, the reason we say others here is because the word here for others is the word alas, those that are similar. In other words, other people with the gift of prophecy, they then evaluated the prophecy. Now, does anybody know why you might need to evaluate prophecy? There were false prophets, okay? It's not only that there were false prophets, but it's the fact that there were spirits that came because there was a gift called discerning of spirits that helped people discern, is this a spirit from God that's causing this person to speak this? Is that what this is, a spirit from God? Or is this a spirit from the devil? And so the others needed to listen to that prophecy. And this is, I think, one other thing that goes on with the prophecy. It's not just that those people got up and did that, but the evidence seems to be that then they not only gave the prophecy, but then they, there was a little bit, they extrapolated a little bit on it. They maybe expounded a little bit on their prophecy. They got a prophecy from God, and then they go on and they kind of share some other things about that prophecy in that context. Does everybody kind of get that? Oh, we're all out of these. Sorry, Kale. Were you looking for for some others? Oh, I, I apologize. I didn't run enough of these off today. But he says here, he says, let the others. So the other prophets were the ones that actually, it says pass judgment, and that passing judgment is they're evaluated. So you have prophets that spoke up. They shared their prophecy. Some of them then said something about it, and then the rest of the other prophets, think about this, wouldn't this be very different in a church if you had somebody stand up and they said, I have something to share, and they shared a prophecy that God gave them, and then other people, like, do we have other prophets? And we had two or three other prophets that stood up, and they say, and those people then looked at that and said, that prophecy aligns with the other prophecies that we know, it's not out of character with them, it fits, Maybe it's a prophecy that's telling us something new, but that new thing also will fit. It's not then totally turning this other revelation on its head. Now, you and I may not appreciate this, but what, what was, who is the foundation of the church? Who is the foundation of the church? Who's the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Who laid the foundation of the church? The apostles and prophets. They were the ones that God was using to give the new revelation about our salvation and what the church is founded on. A lot of that has to do with learning about who we are in Christ and who Christ is right now and where he is right now. Okay, That's one of the things we talked a little bit about down there in their class. Where is Christ right now? Where is Christ right now, Brooklyn? 
He's in heaven. What's he doing up there in heaven? It's really loud for me. I'm deaf. Sitting on his father's throne. You know how many people don't know that? It's real plain in scripture. But you'd be surprised at how many Christians don't know that Jesus Christ is sitting on his father's throne. Most Christians think that Jesus Christ is the king sitting on his throne reigning right now. But that foundation of understanding that he's sitting on the Father's throne right now, waiting, as Paul says in more than one text, that's foundational for us. So the apostles and prophets are giving this revelation out. So you got these prophets that are explaining this to people. And others come along. So now, all of a sudden, you have a prophet that stands up and it says, Jesus Christ is on his throne and he's swinging his, his scepter around up there. And he's going to set all this stuff right down here probably this coming week. And the rest of them go, wait a second. Scripture, the prophecies that we've been giving, because remember, they don't have a Bible to go check this against, do they? They don't have a New Testament. When he's writing 1 Corinthians, they might have had a copy of 1 or 2 Thessalonians. They might have. But we have no evidence that they had copies of those yet. Because this is just within just a few months of, of having been in Thessalonica. And 1 Corinthians is the third letter that Paul writes. So they have new, no New Testament. So their revelation is oral. It's coming up. People are sp speaking this. And so they got prophets. And the rest of the prophets are going, wait a second. Christ is not on his throne today. He's sitting on the Father's throne. He's sitting at the Father's right hand, which is why we are at the Father's right hand, which is why the church is, is rested or founded on him, not on the fact that he's sitting on his throne reigning over the nations today. And so they could come in there and they could evaluate that, that truth or that prophecy, not truth, that prophecy based on that. So the point is, when we're looking at this, he goes on, let's keep, on, keep going there. It says, but if revelation then, so they're doing this, but if revelation then is given or made to another one. So we have another one that's sitting there. That is another similar prophet is made to another who is seated. Then let the first keep silent. In other words, you don't keep going, wait a second. No, I'm not done. You sit down and be quiet. I had more things I wanted to say about this. No, he says, you need to sit and be quiet and let this other one that has received a revelation, a prophetic revelation, you need to let them speak up. Now, I want to add something here about the, well, let's keep reading and then you'll see the significance of this. Verse 31, for you all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged or exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, when a spirit brought you a prophecy, that spirit didn't take control over you. You're not just sitting there and all of a sudden, boom, spirit took me. Oh, control in my mouth. Ah, I can't stop myself. That's not what's happening. You could, you could choose to not speak what that, what that spirit was, wanted to say through you. You could make that decision as an individual. By the way, we're talking a little bit about some Pentecostal groups. That's the thing that biblically is very interesting, that we don't have evidence in the New Testament that the spirit takes control over people and they're just like robots and they can't do anything. Now, did God, through the spirit, give people prophecies that they spoke controlling every word coming out of their mouth so it was accurate. Yes, we do have that happening. But he doesn't turn them into robots. 
They're still responding to people. They're still interacting like Peter filled with the Spirit speaking in Acts 2. He still is responding to people when people say, what should we do? Peter goes, well, this is what you should do. So he says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You're not, you're not so controlled like in Pentecostal churches where the Spirit just takes over you and throws you on the floor and you thrash about or get down on the ground and bark like dogs. And if you think people don't do that, there are churches that call themselves Christians that that's exactly what they do. They practice holy laughter. They bark in the Spirit, which is nonsense. They fall down on the ground and thrash. In Scripture, who fell down on the ground and thrashed? Demon what? Demon yeah, people that were possessed by demons. I heard a lot of voices. If you said that, it's just that I <laughs> heard three people speak at once or whatever. I can't. I couldn't filter through that. The Holy Spirit is not glorified. God's not glorified by throwing people on the ground. So we all get to prophesy in this way. Verse 32, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion. Now, I remember many years ago uh, when we were visiting some friends uh, that um, two uh, Jehovah's Witnesses came and knocked on the door with their little bags and everything like that, and they want to talk to us, and I shared the gospel with them. Uh, and then uh, and I just pointed out, I said, because as a, the gospel, Jesus, Jesus is God become flesh. And they said, Jesus isn't God. And I said, yeah, and I showed them John 1.1. Well, that says Jesus is a God because that's the way their Bibles translate it. And, and I, I'm, I don't want to get into this debate with these guys. I just want to kind of stick to sharing the gospel with them. And they go, you believe in the Trinity? And I said, I do. And they said, the Trinity is a confusing doctrine and God is not a God of confusion. That's not what this verse means. We think of confusing like, oh, that's confusing. How many of you have things that you've ever learned in the Bible that when you first learn it, you're kind of like, that's a little confusing. I don't quite get that. Okay, we have two people that will admit that down here that I can see. The rest of you, if you're admitting it, I missed it. But I, yeah, I have things. I've got passages of Scripture I still scratch my head at that I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with that exactly. Okay? If I knew what all those things meant, guess what? I wouldn't be here anymore. I'd be in heaven. And you'd all be there too. Because that's, that's the first place that we're going to understand others. If you think you're going to understand every jot and every tittle and every little thing in the Word of God now you have a very inflated opinion of what I think we're able to do during this life. <coughs> anyway, but having said that, when he says God is not the God of confusion, what he means is God is not a God of disorderliness. Disorderliness. Let's wait on this one. He's not the God of disorderliness. Chaos. Now, can you imagine? It says everybody has a psalm. Everybody has a teaching, everybody has a prophecy, has a tongue, has an interpretation, and maybe I got those in the wrong order or the ones there. But he's just, and he's, is he saying that that's all there is, just those five options? No, I think there's others, but he's given us illustrations. Could you imagine if every Sunday we were in here and we opened it up for you to share stuff? <coughs> Could you imagine? Yeah, I'm still fighting a little bit of this cough. Could you imagine if on a Sunday we did that? Everybody in here all wanted to share something. And have we had some Sundays that people have had long sharing, and I just let you share, and we didn't even do our Bible study. You could, we'd done that? Yeah. No, there's been, I think, two or three times over the years that we, I just didn't end up doing anything because there was so much good sharing. I just wanted people to share things. 
But could you imagine what it would be like if everybody said, I'm going to share something next. And all we did, and it's like Stan's down there, and he's waiting for Terry to stop. And as soon as Terry's done, he jumps in there. doesn't even get somebody else because he wants to share his thing. And then as soon as he's done, Rebecca's going, well, Dad said this, but then this. And then Susan's back there. She's waiting. And everybody's just like, you kind of go, this is kind of chaotic. There's no order to this. Everybody's just kind of trying to talk over everybody else. And we don't have time to even think about what was just shared. You know, because don't you need that when somebody shares something? Don't you need to kind of let the wheels turn just a little bit there? He says, God's not a God of chaos. And I think that the very fact that Paul uses that, these, fam these people from the family of Chloe that have come over to where Paul is and have kind of told him about some of the problems, I think they're saying, it's kind of crazy over there at church. It's the, the, when we're meeting, it's kind of chaotic. And chaos doesn't produce encouragement. It doesn't edify. So he says, God's not a God of chaos. And I think that that's, a, and so it's not confusing. It's not that God isn't confusing. God isn't confusing. Some things he says sometimes is confusing to us for whatever reason. But God's not confusing. But that's not the point. He's not chaotic. He doesn't work chaos. In fact, creation that's a very, one of the very points of creation as a testimony to God. Even in the Psalms, it says that, that the very order of creation and the order of the heavens speaks to the fact that God is a God of order in terms of what he does, not a God of chaos. So <coughs> keeping this in mind, all of this is coming down to this issue then where he's talking about this and he says, let the women keep silent. And the word that he uses for silent here in verse 34 mm, Kind of not a word maybe we want to find, but it's the word, yeah, be quiet, zip it, don't speak. Now, there's a couple of reasons that this may be the case, just to be honest. One of those reasons may be that the women were, and this is just making a judgment call on this because Paul doesn't say why, but there's this one. Some, it's, it's really interesting, especially when you read older commentaries on this. <laughs> so women, please forgive me. I'm quoting some older guys, but they essentially say, women have a problem with opening their mouths and just speaking without thinking. Well, I, my, my problem is the minute I read that, I was like, well, I know a lot of guys that open their mouths and speak without thinking. So I don't know that that, that we can say that that's where this lies. But probably the very reason that Paul makes this statement here is because, again, as Chloe has, has stated, guess what? The women are doing like 90 or 80% of the talking when we're, when we're talking about whether we should accept this prophecy that was just given or not. Again, that's the context now. You've got these people deciding on prophecies, and he says, do it. Each one of your prophets can prophesy, but in order, because God's not a God of chaos. And in that discussion, and I believe that that's what he's talking about, when we have that statement about verse 29, and let the others pass judgment, that's the background for this whole issue of revelation in here with regard to prophecy. This is the reason why he is saying here that the women, that the women, he says, should be silent. And notice he doesn't say just in your church, he does say in churches, plural. In other words, when you have these kind of discussions getting going and people are trying to discern and go through and divide on how, what, do we accept this doctrine or don't we accept this? And this is the whole thing. 
I think we look at this and it's easy for us to think that somebody gets up and gives a prophecy and then we end up with like a 20, 30 minute discussion on the nature of that prophecy. I don't think we have a 20, 30 minute discussion on the prophecy. I'm going to guess it doesn't take very long for these other prophets to just compare it quickly with what they have and the discernment probably shouldn't take but five minutes or so. But sometimes, and this is going to be important now, as we go on here, verse 34, let the women be silent, for it is not permitted for them to speak. Now, the word that he uses for speak is the verb laleo, not the word lego. In fact, the word lego means little plastic bricks that hurt your feet that your kids leave. No, hold, wait a second, that's another thing. No, lego is a word that means to speak with content. There's something significant. That's why a form of that word lego, the noun logos, is used of God. God the Son in particular in John 1. He's the logos. He's the one that just doesn't open his mouth and just make noise. He's the one that actually communicated the truth of who God is and what God's doing. Lego. Logos. In fact, sometimes if you learn Greek and you come across the form of the word, the word logos, you come to that, and there's places where it doesn't, it's not translated word. It's talking, it says a thing or a matter because it's used for, here's, a, here's an issue, here's something that's going on, and they call it a logos. And we're going, what is that? Because that was the breadth of meaning that this could talk about something of significance. Pay attention to this thing of significance. Now, what did lalao mean? Well, that all is to make a sound. It's to open your mouth. In fact, one of the places, and I uh, just see if I can uh, note it here because I'm kind of I'm kind of going through this stuff, but not on the. Uh, on the outline as much as I'd like. I didn't write this one down. I should have written this down. Lalao is used sometimes to people that are speaking in tongues. Back up in the context. Because, well, if you're in a room, uh, I listened to a, a guy that grew up in, in a Christian-type church. He's not a Christian, he'll tell you that. He's not a Christian in that sense now. But when they talked about uh, prophecy... Uh, or excuse me, tongues, he said when he was growing up, he didn't really know what to think about tongues. And he says, when he looked back at this, I think the word he used, he says, when somebody in church would get up and say, rama rama ding dong, ling long ling. There was some song from way back in the 50s or something that kind of had something to that effect in it. Uh, he says, was that, was that real tongues or not? That's what people were trying to figure out. But that, that's the whole thing, is that if somebody got up and, and in a lot of, Pentecostals, in fact, I would say probably almost all Pentecostal churches today, I'm kind of stepping out there saying almost all Pentecostal churches today, when people speak in tongues, they're not speaking known languages. They're speaking gibberish. It is literally lalao. It's just gibbering noise. How many of you are your kids when they were little? ever just made noise. It's like, you could tell, they think they're saying something, but it's just, and you're going, boy, I wish I knew what you were talking about. But that's, Josh. It's also sometimes presented like it's some special Holy Spirit language, but that's not it either, because the, what it describes in the Bible is that it, they were real languages, even dialects. Yes. So it's not some special language that 
Only the spiritual know when they're spiritual. That's right. Yeah, so if you went back over to Acts 2, when these people speak in tongues, doesn't just said that it doesn't just limit it to tongues, but it says, as Josh said, dialect. Okay, so they were speaking in, you know, well, let's put it this way. Have you ever listened to anybody, you ever listened to an interview from somebody from Maine? Like, let's pick on some poor Maine fisherman out there that goes out on a boat and fishes, and he speaks up, and you're like, is he even speaking English? I love, I love when I have time, I love British mysteries. My wife does not like British mysteries because she's like, I don't understand half of what they're saying. It doesn't sound like they're speaking English. It's like you have to watch it with the captions on. See, like that. That's a dialect. It's English, but it's a dialect of that English versus us that speak proper English here on the West Coast versus the English that messed it up. No, obviously, it's, that's not the case, but you get the point. It's a dialect. It, it changes. Now, the reason I'm saying all that is because if you don't know those things, then when you see, when you listen lao or distinguish something as a lao, it's just making noise. It's just speaking up. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever been somewhere where somebody wants to say something? Maybe there's a group meeting and somebody has a piece that they want to say and they get up and you kind of, when they're done, you like look around at the other people you're with at the meeting and you're like, what? It's like, none of you can figure out what that person just said. Has that ever happened where you've been in like a meeting and some people just want to get up to that microphone and they've got their piece to say and when you're done, it's like, did you even really think through what you wanted to say? Because I'm not for sure what you were getting at. And the significance, and that's why <coughs> I think there's some significance here in verse 34. Let the women keep silent in the churches for it is not permitted to speak that word lalao. He's not saying... It's just not permitted for her to just to, to, to just have anything to contribute. It's that she's not permitted to just get up and just wag her tongue in the meeting. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that there are some guys that maybe had that problem? Probably. But the implication by this is, is apparently some of the women in the church had this as an especial problem. And the house of Chloe comes and says, Paul, when we're there... This person and this person, Paul goes, oh, I remember them. Yeah, they have to speak up every time we talk about this. And most of the time, it's just noise. They're not really contributing to the conversation. They're not really contributing to what's going on here. Does everybody follow that? So he doesn't use this because Lego is content. And so what he's saying is, they're not there to be silent because Paul says, I don't want them just to speak for the sake of speaking. I don't want them just speaking up just to be heard. This is what Paul is trying to get at in this context. But let them then be in submission, just as the law says. So the law says women ought to be in submission. And Paul tells us that. In fact, Paul even says a spirit-filled wife, Ephesians chapter 5, is in submission to her husband. But then it also says after that, you husbands ought to be spirit-filled and you ought to love your wives, which means you're, you're being a loving husband that your wife would be willing to submit to rather than a selfish husband, that the wife's like, I don't really want to do all that. And the husband's like, well, we're doing what I want because you're supposed to submit whether, rather than the, wife, the husband being loving and saying, hey, you know, this isn't a thing you're really into. It's not necessary. We don't have to do that. Right, guys? 
right? Isn't this where we want to be? Wish you, oh, thank you, Gary. I got one nod on that. Okay, maybe there were more, but just to encourage us that as men, sometimes we want our wives to submit, but we never, in that thing, we never really want to think about are we really loving them so that they would like to submit? Because we never think about what they might be interested in or what they want to do. It's just about what we want to do. Anyway, this idea of submission then comes up. So verse 35, and if then they desire... <coughs> oh, yeah, no, we had me to come down here yet. Okay, so it says, and if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. Now, this comes back to that question that Ben was asking. Is there a word, is there a distinct word between woman and wife? And there's not. It's just the word gune, wife, wife, or woman, woman. It's just, you de you're determined by context. Now, interestingly enough, it's the same thing with husband. We don't have a word, a Greek word, that we have in our New Testament that's husband. Husband is on air, male, on air, male. Husband, husband. You have to determine by context. Okay? And so when we're looking at this, this is something, it says, let her ask her husband at home. Guys, are you paying attention to this? If your wife, if this were the setting that you were in, you know what it really makes the husband responsible to do? He needs to be paying attention so that when they get home and the wife says, Hey, that discussion, it went this way, and what was that point that Bob made? And the husband's going, what, what, what point did Bob make? Well, you know, Bob was saying that thing. What was that about? And the husband's going, um, what he's doing here is he's thinking, how can I answer this? Because I remember thinking about football game starts at one o'clock. Uh, am I going to have time to get eat and sit down? In my, you, you get the point? The point being is, if husbands are going to answer these questions for their wives, the husbands ought to be paying attention. And sadly, by my experience in a number of situations, I've been in different churches where you go there, and the women are the ones that seem to be interested in Bible study and learning these things, and the men are all like, I just can't wait to go home and go fishing or watch football, or I don't know, whatever other thing they've got in their mind. They're not, they don't take it sometimes as seriously as the women do. So the poor gals were being encouraged to be quiet and not interrupting, not just making their voices heard all the time. And yet the husbands themselves are not, they're being spiritually lazy, which is not loving, by the way. Why would a wife, she, she's finally, she's like, I'm asking a question. I know Paul said I ought to be quiet, but I need to step up and say something here because I know this guy here, I was going to use the word joker, but we'll be nice. This guy here is probably not listening. <coughs> Guys, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, 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 in, in, <laughs> I'm encouraging all of you men, pay attention. Pay attention. Married or not, pay attention. And do that in part so that you can actually go, ha go home and have a substantial conversation with your wife about some of these things that come up rather than... Cause some, uh, 
I don't know if this ever happens to you, but my wife and I, we, we don't do this every Sunday, but sometimes Sundays we go for, take, we take walks after, after, after we say goodbye to the Nelsons. Nelsons are almost always the last ones to go out the door with us. And so then we go home, <coughs> change our clothes, put on tennis shoes, we go for a walk for a couple hours, and we talk about, oh, like, what did, what did you guys do in your Sunday school class today? All this thing, and we were doing this thing, and Kylie spoke up and said this, and Clayton said this, and she was talking about these things. And we went, oh, this thing was really cool here. And I'm like, and, and I, I want to know what they were doing. But then she says, hey, during church, this thing came up, and, I, you know, how would you say this? And so we bounce stuff back and forth. And sometimes I'm really good at that, and sometimes I'm kind of lazy about that. You know, she might say, so what did Jim talk about in his class? Because she's in her class teaching. She kind of wants to know what Jim went over, whoever else was teaching in there. And some Sundays I can do this, and some Sundays it's like my, I'm mentally preoccupied with something else, which is sad. Most of the time I'm good about paying attention. So, as he's talking about this here in this context, he says, verse 35, he says, but if she desires to learn anything in her own home, let her ask her husband. Now, this word that he uses for ask, I've translated ask as an equal because it's the verb erotao, which means to ask as equals. What does that say about the husband-wife relationship? Really, yet even though she's submitting, it is a relationship of equals. Guys, gals, stop and think about that. So they're asking as equals, and as we said, men pay attention to, to, so that you're able to answer. So he goes on here, what if they, uh, they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is, he says, it's improper. And that word improper is, is literally a word in the Greek which means it's shameful. It's kind of a shameful thing, uh, he says here, for women then to speak... Uh, I needed to get my place for them to speak in, in church. And it just doesn't say in the church. It just says in assembly. And that word lalao again is just to open your mouth and be heard. Now let me ask this question. Well, keep, you don't have to keep your finger here. I don't know if we'll be back or not. But turn over to chapter 11. We referenced this earlier, but I want to come back. To, I want to look at this here for a minute. <coughs> First Corinthians chapter 11. Look with me at verse 5. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with those whose head is shaved or cut really short, shorn short. <coughs> and there's a number of issues related to this, what's going on over here. But for our point in verse, 40, verse 4, she's praying or prophesying. Now we've already said this. If a woman has a gift of prophecy, do we have any women prophets in the New Testament? Yeah. I don't know if you remember those. Like I said, I wasn't in Carmen's class, so I don't know what they got through today. But there's a guy by the name of Philip. He's an evangelist, and he has four daughters who are all prophets. Now, what good does it do for a woman to give a prophetic, be given a prophetic gift if she can't ever speak that prophecy? It doesn't do anybody good. She can write them down and pass them to a man, and then he can read them. And that, no, it never says that. It doesn't ever indicate that. What would be the indication is she speaks up. And we already built a case from the Old Testament that the Old Testament didn't muzzle women. Because there were women that were act as judges, and it says, and people were coming to her, those judges, all day for decisions. And if they were a judge, that meant that they were given as a judge by God, 
Not that they stood them, set themselves up as a judge. And one of those judges was a prophet. And then we have a woman by the name of Haldo who was a prophet. And remember, the, the, the leading men there had to go to Huldah to find out, we found this book. It's called the law. What do we do with this? It was up there in the temple, which is apparently falling down. And Huldah tells him what to do. How can she do that? Because God could give her prophecy that then she related to these people. So likewise, we come over here to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If a woman prays or prophesies in the church, it's, in, it's indicating doesn't say in the church here, just as praise or prophesies, but what benefit does that do if she doesn't share it with the other people? That's the point. And so what we're dealing with is the fact that women did speak. Women had the ability to prophesy. And they must have prophesied in the church because that's where, when they were prophesying, that they had to pull out their veil and lay this veil down over themselves. It's not a little beanie on top. I just watched... Uh, uh, video the other day of, of some uh, couple from back east and the wife's got this little lacy thing up here that she puts on the top of her head like that because that's her head covering. That is not the head coverings, by the way, that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. He's talking about a full veil that came down over everything, maybe even covered over her face for all we know. Now, was that veil thing all over the culture or just in Corinth? It was the thing that I, it, yeah, we're kind of off topic. I, I got, I did that on my own here. <laughs> But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, he says the church doesn't have a tradition in this matter. We don't have a tradition. But in Corinth, simple terms, there were women that served as temple priestesses in the temple there in Corinth, which was the temple of, is that the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, I think it was? Jupiter. Temple of Jupiter. And they served up there, I couldn't remember. And they were called temple priestesses. But they also moonlighted. They were prostitutes, what they were on the side, which was all tied into kind of the worship and everything that they did. And one of the things that they did, and it's interesting, if you look at some of that, you, you can look at ancient scratching, scratch drawings or paintings that are on pottery from back at that time, and they actually have paintings of women prostitutes from that era there in Corinth. And those women never let their hair go long. They pulled their hair up. If they had long hair, they pulled it up and they balled it up on top of their head when they served in that capacity. Or they just shaved their heads or cut it really, really short. Now, if you walk around town here in Royal City and you see a woman that has short hair, my wife wears her hair short. I, you know, I, I kind of was always, oh, wear your hair long, wear your hair long, wear your hair long. She grew her hair long. I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. And then when she cut it short again, because it just got to be a pain for her to keep it long all the time, she got short. I said, I missed this. <laughs> this is the way she's been almost my whole marriage. And I never look at her going, man, you're, you are so unsubmissive with that short hair. Because our culture doesn't look at it that way. But if you were in a culture where that demonstrated a lack of submission, we'd say, that's a big deal. But our culture doesn't do that. I hope you understand. So yeah, so it's, I think it's a culturally related issue in the city of Corinth. And I know there's some people that are saying, no, no, it wasn't culturally related. Women did this in all of the churches. And I would say, Paul makes a statement there in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, no. But coming back to this then, women did pray and prophesy. Therefore, when he's talking about this issue about women speaking, the speaking in the context, both times when he mentions it is loleo. It's just opening your mouth, 
making your voice heard, and it is not about content. And I think that that's something true for all of us to take away from this, not just the women, but even the men, is to stop and think, if I'm going to raise my hand in a class, whether it's here, I don't mind you asking questions. I don't mind people speaking up and sharing things. But I just want you to know, if we do think that we're going to ask a question or make a contribution, I think we really need to think, what do I want to say? And I don't want it just to be a reactionary thing. I want to say something that I think will contribute, that'll maybe clarify or ask for a clarification rather than, I just want to be heard. And as we said, we don't need to go through that again, but we've all been in places where we know that person <laughs> that just wants to be heard. Not that there's any concern about what, what they actually have to say. So the question then, I believe that in, in the, my answer, my understanding, if we go back to those opportunities there, is I believe that this largely in point D that I had uh, on, on the left-hand column, we had F to D, D in the print with the parentheses, that this refers to women judging prophesy, prophecies. This fits the immediate context. It's right in, in fact, I didn't finish this, but it says if... Uh, in verse 36 of 1 Corinthians 14, was it from you that the word of God first came forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet, spiritual person, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. And in other words, he's, he's not done with the whole prophecy thing. He's still talking about it. So my understanding, my reading of this is that I believe the real issue about women being silent had to do with the discerning or the evaluation of the prophecies in that context. And that in that context, that they were to be quiet. And I think largely, as he's talking about this, because they'd had, as I said, House of Chloe has told them that things are chaotic over there. Everybody's trying to participate. And I, I forgot to make this point on this. When it's talking about everybody can participate, because he says everybody can do it one at a time, because this was very interesting reading commentaries where they're giving these different ways of interpreting this. One of the things that they're really bad at doing is we're really bad at reading the way we do church with the way the first century did church. Because one of the things that we don't do that the first century did, they met, the churches met every day of the week. Nobody had a television to go home and sit and put their feet up you didn't eat your meal at home by yourself. Everybody in the evenings took their meals together in these churches. They met together every day. And so if you're doing this every day, that while you're meeting and you have some time together, over the course of a seven-day week, would everybody have an opportunity to participate? Yeah. Maybe on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I don't get to say anything. I don't get to do anything at church because it's other people's <laughs> turn. But maybe by the time Friday comes around, now, now there's an opportunity for me to share something. You get the point? I think in that kind of a context, it also reminds us everybody could be participating. If all of you tried to get a participation time in in the short little time that we meet on a Sunday here, or maybe on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night or whatever it is, well, some of us, our church is small enough, most of you could, but in... There's times when we've had more people as we were looking at some of those pictures up there earlier that, yeah, not everybody would be able to share something. 
But I think that they could in those contexts, and women could speak up and say things. But when it came down to that division, Chloe's going, it's chaotic at church. Everybody's talking over the top of everybody. And when we're talking about prophecies, man, it goes on. And there's people that are just standing up and they're just speaking to, be, to, to hear themselves talk. I don't know if that, I hope that that helps you because as I've gone through this and I've worked through this context here many times over the years and uh, when I was working on this study last year, this just, there were so many things that kind of came out. I don't know that I'd ever paid attention to the fact that the use of the word lolao in here, which really, the minute I saw that, that really jumped off the page at me about the significance of this. And so I hope that this is helpful. No, that's over in chapter 16. That's over in chapter 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 16 and verse 12. It says in verse 1 Corinthians 16, 12, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I have encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brothers. But he's not desirous to come now, for he will come when it's a good time. In other words, the reason he says concerning Apollos, why does he say concerning Apollos? Because they'd asked about him. When's he coming back? When's he coming back? We'd like him to come back. Okay, great, thank you. Um, second, you mentioned Chloe. What are you talking about? Um, and that is also over here... Um, It's here in chapter six. I was thinking it was chapter sixteen, and I might be wrong. That might actually, that might be over in chapter one. But I was thinking over here. It says, as I've heard from those of the household of Chloe. Um, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I'm not seeing. We do have some others. Verse seventeen. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking in your part. But doesn't see, that doesn't seem that they're the ones that were that we're saying, relating some of these things uh, to them. But I know he does elsewhere. I just, off the top of my head, I'm not finding it. Okay. Pardon me? 1 Corinthians 1.11. 1 Corinthians 1.11. Let's go flip over there and take a look at that. First Corinthians 1.11 says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe, that there are quarrels or fights or strife among you. And he says, I, this is what I mean. One says, I'm a Paul. One says, I'm of Paulus. One says, I'm of Cephas. In other words, yeah. So people from Chloe that had come to Paul that said, man, it's chaotic over there. Yes. And I just have one more. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, in, let's see where we're 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Oh, yeah. My question is, why is he directing them to the Old Testament law? I think, I think all Paul's saying is that there's a precedent for wives to be in submission that comes out of the law. Remember, he, he, Paul does not yet, Paul does not yet, has not yet explained the whole issue of the relationship of husband and wives that he will in Ephesians. That'll be in about four years that he's going to write that. 
And to be real honest, I think that that's some revelation that Paul gets in between those times that kind of rounds out his understanding of the relationship of Christian husbands and wives. That at this time, I, I think he doesn't know. So you think that he's using this because of he doesn't yet What's the, is Corinthians one of the first books? Yeah, he writes First and Second Thessalonians and then First Corinthians, yeah. I don't think this is law, though, like, like Mosaic law. This is law like the Torah. The first five books, it was called the law, it was, right? Yeah. Genesis, we would go back to Genesis, the, the woman came from man. Right. And that Sarah was in submission to her husband Abraham, which he says that which he says elsewhere, and Peter uses that same, yeah, and Peter uses that same illustration of Sarah submitting to Abraham, and he does that in First Peter three. So, Carmen. Not only, and then there's the familiarity of meeting every day, essentially the same group of people. It's, I mean, you just think about, you know, any situation where you have the same people getting together and there's not leadership to maintain order, I can see where it probably really quickly became not only just people trying to speak but even trying to become in that leadership position and like it just seems like it must have been I don't know <coughs> you think about people today yeah. <laughs> you know and it, it just it must have just been continuously growing into this worse and worse situation but my question was is why why did he direct the one part I mean, it's almost like we're only married women speaking out, or single women not speaking out. Because, I mean, what would I do? I don't have anybody to come home and talk to. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I, I said earlier that we'd come back to that, and then we forgot because Ben asked that question earlier. But he does say that let them ask their own husbands when they get home yeah. in there. And, yeah, what did you do with those? It, I, they asked their fathers. Uh, well, if if they, if they were if they had not been married, but the problem was, is I mean, sometimes you had women that were widowed, and sometimes women that their husbands had left them for for whatever reason, and so sometimes you did have women that you know were kind of on their own a little bit. And I don't know. Let's just put it this way: I think that was a rare situation that you and I don't appreciate in their culture. If if you're if you're a woman and your husband dies, your first thing isn't I need to find another guy to take care of me. Or if your husband divorces you, oh, I, I need to go get another guy to take care of me. I mean, women can be fair, in our modern world, can be fairly self-sufficient. But in the first century, you could go out and get a job, and there was no pay equity or equity equal pay. Women were going to get paid a quarter of what the men were doing the same work during the day. It was their culture. It's just the way it was. And it was going to be hard, which meant if you were a widow, you were a pauper quite often. So women frequently remarry so when their husband... Uh, marry more than one woman sometimes because I know in scripture it says a man of one woman. Right. So that infers that some men married more than one. Apparently in their culture, even in the New Testament times, apparently that had happened. 
but believers aren't supposed to do that because if the pastor sets the example, then the people in the church should set that, should follow that example, which means the men in the church should be one woman men. So, yeah. Anyway, boy, there's see you, you just do this, you just scratch at the surface on this, and and a whole lot of other things come out of this. Um, anyway, we'll come back. We've got some other things to look at. I I didn't think we'd get. I didn't know how far we'd get in this, and we got about as far as I had hoped to. Um, we went just a little bit longer, but thank you for your patience, and I hope it's helpful because, I mean, let's put it this way. We're in a, we're in a modern era that this is definitely an issue in churches, and I think that there's a point at which we need to really talk about what the church says if the church is going to function the way God desires us to. So, Father, we're thankful for the morning. We're thankful for the contribution, the questions that have been asked, and the things that have been offered, <coughs> and we just ask for your Spirit's guidance in handling these words so that we might uh, not just come to the way we want it to be, the way we want it to look, but actually what you have said here, uh, so that we operate in a manner that is glorifying to you in uh, our local assembly or wherever, whatever assembly you may have us in. And we would thank you for all of this then. Amen.